Irregular Hours, episode 157 for March 30th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm your curmudgeon, Chip Hessenplot. And I'm your optimist, Pam Pador. (laughs) (laughs) And we are here with our 10th book in our series. This is The Ministry for the Future. This was written and published in late 2020 by Kim Stanley Robinson. Pam, this is your book that you've brought to the group. Tell us all about this. Okay, so first of all, you're welcome and I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so this is a book that I read in part because I recently read Amitav Ghosh's book, The Great Derangement, which I know I've talked about on this podcast before. One of the arguments that Ghosh makes is that we need cli-fi or climate fiction that doesn't reside within science fiction. And when Ghosh writes this, He argues that part of the problem we have with climate crisis denial is that the literature, the stories we tell around climate change tend to be disaster stories through science fiction. So they end up looking like alien encounters, time travel, climate change. They all look analogous. And that was such a fascinating idea to me. I've thought about it a lot. And I wanted to read a book that deeply engages with questions of climate change that wasn't science fiction. Because you guys know, I love those disaster stories. I love apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic literature, as you very well know. So that's why about a month ago, month and a half ago, I decided to read Kim Stanley Robinson's new book, which was, was presented to me as climate change within the literary fiction genre. When I finished the novel, I was like, oh, I have to talk about this book to someone like this is not a book I just read by myself, put on my shelf, go on to the next book. I got to talk. So you guys, thank you slash I'm sorry are the ones. So that's my big question for this novel. Is this an effective novel in combating or thinking through questions of climate crisis? And does it does reading this book activate us? or paralyze us, fill us with dread, anxiety. Like, this is a book with a very specific rhetorical purpose, right? This is meant to activate us. Does that work or not? We won't know till we get to the end, but I'd love to check in with you guys as we read through. Having read the first 120 odd pages of this, what do you think? Do you like this? Do you not like this? Where is it? Where are you at? I'm very frustrated by this book. Okay. Um, so far... I got the the climate change is a, is a big topic. So he, I think he does this incredibly well. That that is a very difficult subject to get to, to wrap your head around. And because mm-hmm. what you're basically doing is you're asking a celestial body, and you're trying to control the nature of it with competing interests. I find many of the uh, arguments and the logic that he goes down to just not be very strong. And I just, I just, I, I get frustrated by this because I, I just recognize it's such a big subject. And while I've, I've thought about it some, um, I was really hoping that I could really explore more of it. And I think I'd be better served with a book on it as opposed to going through some of the arguments that get made here. I do think the, um, 
the beginning disaster that that gets that sets up this is interesting. Uh, I would not have considered that to be the match that starts the move to it. I can't help but think that if this was the case, it certainly would be more um, military oriented than sort of what we're dealing with right now in this story so far. So Chip, one of the things you just said is that you wish you were reading a book about climate change. And did you mean like you wish you were reading nonfiction versus Correct. fiction? Okay. Correct. And that's one of the big questions, right? And a huge question for us to consider is like, what is the value of reading fiction? Like, we have a lot of studies from cognitive science that say people respond better to stories than to statistics. But at the same time, there's also some research that suggests a combination of the two. And I think that's what Stanley Robinson is trying to do here is combine stories. Like we have characters, Mary's story, Frank's story, combine those stories with just like putting in a bunch of stats in various ways. And so, yeah, like, so that wasn't very effective for you, Chip. How about for you, Steve? I, I really enjoyed the switching between the different voices. I'm listening to the audio version and the different actors portraying the different voices and the different writing styles of the different sections so that we get that fiction, we get that line of narrative of these characters, and then we get those other chapters that are the fill in to that the some of it is factual some of it is 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 there was a chapter where i wasn't sure who any of the voices were you know <laughs> yes. and, and it's just these ideas this ideology which we'll get to later in the show this ideology of how we get there not just the statistics not just the fiction but an ideology throughout you know, and one of the things this, so this novel reminds me of two other novels very, very strongly. One is The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, written about the Great Depression, mm -hmm. which is structured in a very similar way. We have the story of the Jodes as they traverse the country on their long road trip. And then we have these interspersed chapters that are giving you like broader analysis of the Great Depression. And so that sense of moving back and forth between narrative and facts is very similar. It also reminds me of Max Brooks's World War Z, the oral history of the zombie apocalypse. And in part because the audiobook for that is also exceptionally well done with all these different voices. You can hear the different accents, the different rhythms of people all around the world in this global catastrophe. And I think that's something that Robinson does extremely well is capture the global nature of this. Although we're just gonna be following two characters very closely, we're also aware that this is impacting everybody everywhere. That opening, the opening salvo of this, the first chapter certainly captured my imagination. It has the best opening line. It was getting hotter. Which I just love because like, that's the fact, my friends, the, the earth is getting hotter. And whether you think it's anthropogenic caused by humans or not, you can't deny the fact that the temperature is increasing. We do open with this most horrifying heat wave. Now, I had actually never read a heat wave scene that impacted me so viscerally. 
Agreed. And was that just me or did you guys feel speaking as somebody who has breathing problems in general, I physically felt the weight of this scene. He writes this this absolutely unthinkable moment where thousands of people perish in just the heat of the earth. Just, it's a hot day, a super hot day. And the idea of the particulates in the air, the having a meter to count the particulates in the air was just stifling to me. And he really drew me in with chapter one. This is a heat wave that's going over India. And, and my immediate thought is India is one of the most populous places or that area one of the populous places in the world. Mm -hmm. So um, it, what do we know? That, that there's a lot of people, they're in a, a city. Uh, if there's a heat wave that comes through Chicago, there's going to be a story of some family, some person, somebody basically baking themselves because they don't have an air conditioner, they don't have access to uh, cooler weather in, in an apartment or something, and it's, it's tragic. This one is on a much larger scale because you've got this large group of population and, and, and they're doing things like, hey, and this is this is where I was saying I, I was having some some trouble with it. I didn't have trouble with um, people running upstairs, grabbing their uh, generator, trying to get some air, um, turning that on. I did. But the idea that we all move to out in the sun we're all going to move to the water to the local uh, river and that people i just think that that while we, we've got precedent for it the pastigi fire that happened back in the 1800s up in uh, up in wisconsin when that that's i think one of the largest um uh disasters as far as man-made uh what's a man-made uh human uh, passings, I, I don't know, a gr group of passings. I think there's 2,500 people that may have died during it. They all went to the, the water. They all got in the water. But, you know, if you're going to go to the water, there's nothing above you. You're still having the sun beating you down. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's that's sort of a, a real challenge with that. Um, I'm thinking of where would I go? A parking deck? Um, you know, what? what a basement you'll go someplace that would be cool or as opposed to in an area that you, you're, you're just going to have the sun beating down on you like that i was having some some challenging on challenges on what individuals were choosing to do uh and how they would react to that, that type of heat wave but the point of it was is that there was a heat wave that was not going to stop it was it's basically it was the earth was um, going to accept this hot area for, and this hot area was, it was so warm that people were dying. And I think that's what he was trying to get, get across is that, okay, this is going to be our springboard to moving the discussion to a different level. And I think the word inescapable comes to mind here there there was nowhere to go it was the earth the only solution would be to leave the earth and that's not within that's the not realm true. of possibility steve you, you would go to a cave you, you know you would go to think of the coolest places you could go to um you, that, I, can i just jump in though yeah. i 
that Robinson does a great job of showing there was nowhere there's there was nowhere within a reasonable distance for these people to go. 20 million people die in this heat wave. Now, we've never had a heat wave that bad, but no. we have had some pretty bad heat waves over the past few years um, in in which hundreds of people have died. And we're not people making bad decisions. I just, I'm really, I'm really not comfortable saying these people made bad decisions. I, I think they had like literally nowhere to go. And, to, you know, the, the electricity's out. I mean, they don't, the air conditioning's out. They don't have enough water, right? And so Frank May, our American aid worker, he's, he's the only one who survives in this lake that he ends up in. And he survived because he's a little bit healthier than most people. And he also has that bottle of water that he didn't share with anyone at the end. And he drank the entire thing. And that's, that's why he survived. And so I, I don't know, I felt he did a really, there is no more potable water. What do you do? There's nowhere to go. It's not like there's this empty cave that no one was, oh, people should have, they didn't think to go into, no, there was nowhere for people to go. It was that hot. I don't know. I, I thought he did a really terrific job of showing that. You think there was a, a hidden place that wasn't mentioned? I think that individuals would have made different choices. Now, I, I recognize that, you know, you're talking about a large group and 20 million people, you know, 20 that million would be... Died. That I mean, there's be, way more millions of people in the area, obviously. But, that's, but, you know, but that many people die, that, that means like three Chicago Lions died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's what the springboard to the story starts with, that it wasn't, listen, it was such an incredible amount of people that died mm-hmm. is what we wanted to get to. The scope of this whole thing is is where we need to get to. And he, I think, gives us that in chapter one in a, in a wonderful way. So Frank, as you mentioned, Pam, survives. And then he is, he's traumatized by this as well he would be in a real situation he really suffers from ptsd afterwards and it's interesting because i think robinson gets pretty deep into like different ways to treat ptsd to you know all the way from diagnosis through treatment through you know the the difficulties of treatment but this really reminded me of an argument that i read recently by ann kaplan who's a cultural studies uh, professor. And she writes about disaster literature as pre-traumatic stress disorder. So she's she has a concern that disaster films and novels, although she's more interested in films, they actually create this incipient feeling of dread, mm. like pre-trauma, like all of our narratives around climate change, she worries, are based on like horrible things are going to happen, like this horrible heat wave that kills 20 million people where there's really so little for so so few choices for people to make mm-hmm. that and she's worried that this ends up paralyzing people instead of activating people you, you mean like when schools do drills where they uh, mm-hmm. pretend like there's an active shooter in the in the in the house or how about our generation where we all got underneath her desk because an atom bomb could be dropped right. Uh, right. what type of <laughs> What type of madness uh, says this is the proper way of, uh, of traumatizing young people? I, there's been a lot of study on exactly that question. The idea of a drill for a fire 
Okay, uh, the idea of a drill for a weather disaster. Okay, but the idea of officers of the law coming through my school with blanks shooting guns in my school to show kids what it would be like to be in that situation, that I'm against that wholeheartedly. Right, exactly. So then the question is, is apocalyptic literature, is disaster, are disaster films basically functioning in that way? Hmm. Are these a good thing or a bad thing? Are these, is this a form of literature that's helpful in activating people to think about the climate crisis? Or is it, in fact, stressing us out to the point that we're simply paralyzed and hmm. feel like there's nothing we can do? Well, I think there's a whole group of people who are just paralyzed on what to do. But I, I mean, the idea, though, that, you know, there's a group of people, a group of, of society that enjoy going through the torture of that. They, I mean, they, they, they seek Those it out. Those films are very popular. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They make I mean, a lot of money. Yep. Exactly. And whether true or not true, whether Godzilla stops through your city or not, they enjoy that thing. And then there's the other group that wants to see more realistic versions of that. And then uh, Godzilla's not realistic. Well, <laughs> Steve, and to a certain group it is. Yes. I'm ready. I'm ready for Godzilla versus King Kong. But that's what brings us to Kim Stanley Robinson's book, right? Is that he has this horrifyingly, I think realistic, although we can argue whether it is or not, but this this horrifyingly visceral description of this heat wave. And then he basically says we're going to need a disaster that needs to kill like 20 million people before anyone actually 20 million people in three days before anyone actually does something. And, you know, it's so interesting to be reading this as we're fingers crossed nearing the end of the pandemic and realizing that, yeah, like 3 million people have died and yet we're still arguing about whether we should wear masks or not. You know, I mean, yeah. Like what is it going to take to have people change their behavior? I I don't know. There's still a group of people who haven't really been touched by it. Right. Know? Right. And so they, they have right. a hard time even coming to terms that it's impacting other people. Perspective. It's all about perspective. If if it's not your trauma, it's hard to understand somebody else's trauma. Adam Smith talked about this a long, long time ago in his theory of moral sentiments. He and, and he was bringing up an argument that we and listen. I'm going to fumble this argument, but let's just take it for what it is. We're more concerned about maybe a splinter that got in our finger than a flood that happened in China. And it's not because we don't care about the the flood that happened in China, it's just not in your neighborhood. You don't really see it. You feel bad. And in, your, in the idea, Smith was trying to come to terms with what creates this kind of disconnect. You know, the splinter you can take out, maybe it takes some digging, but it comes out. These people who passed on this thing that's way away from you, it's, it's going to be control. much more imp impact. It's going to impact those people far more. Mm -hmm. What makes humans view their perception this way? Mm -hmm. And anyway, I, I, I should probably stop talking about it because I'm uh, I'm going to fumble up his argument. But you know, <laughs> he he was basically th this has been thought about for a long time. Uh, it's right. it, it's not it's not something that's new. 
Right. And that's where we are with the climate crisis. What can I do? Is it something that I can take a knife and dig out that splinter? Or is it something that is so much bigger than me that I feel paralyzed by the idea of it? Well, we're already doing some things. I mean, immediately, I mean, how many of us are putting LED lights in our home? Uh, versus having incandescent lights. Mm -hmm. And so you move from 100 watts down to, you know, uh, one Four. watt. Mm -hmm. The real challenges we're, we're having right now is, you know, what do we do with, you know, all the trash that we have and all this stuff, how we're basically, um, I, I want to say that, they, I mean, the, the amount of plastic in the ocean is, mm -hmm. is an incredible amount. Fish are eating plastic. Yeah, and then um, we're eating the fish, so we're eating the plastic, and it's a big problem. And and what's the big solution? And and does it start with a little step? Well, it has to start with little steps because mm -hmm. those are the things that you and I can do. Which what you can't do is say, okay, Steve, I know that you enjoy your your air conditioning system, um, but you know the people of Africa and the people of India and the people of China can't have that uh, because you know. You, you get to have it, but they don't. And that's one of the real challenges we're having is we still have this group of people who's, who, whose wealth is rising uh, and they want the quote-unquote luxuries of life that make life much more um, comfortable for them. Um, but what, is that really, what does that really mean? You, you can't deny because of where you live, other people can't live their lives too. And that's where we get to the ministry for the future. The idea of advocating not only for those people who don't have the wealth, but for those people who aren't born yet, for those future generations, for all those animals that have no voice in this. That's the idea of this story. Well, and I find like one of the things that I was really struck by is that Robinson goes deep into bureaucracy. So he, he kind of puts this like, this disaster moment, right? This very apocalyptic scenario that's so visceral with the heat wave, he puts it right next to a boardroom in which he goes around the table and, you know, introduces 13 people and tells you the credentials of each person and then has somebody taking minutes. And Pam's favorite part of the book. Right. I mean, it's so funny because like the need to have larger, like more bureaucratic solutions that involve all the countries of the world from including developed developing um countries it's it's just like it's so brave to to think of writing such a bureaucratic novel like will anyone read this tome this 600 page tome that takes us into all of these boardrooms but that also really addresses something so important so i just that was what I found so impressive about the book was the move between and then mixing that in with these like really philosophical chapters. So we get this really deep dive on PTSD, which I thought was super compelling. And I think that that is thematic. I think that that is where 
Kim Stanley Robinson is giving us the, here's the climate crisis that you are in the middle of that you can't control, and here's PTSD, which is a, a single person's disorder that they can't control. I love this quote, the great affect of our time, even when you knew it was happening to you, that didn't stop it from happening, and the naming of it was useless. Diagnosis was necessary, but not sufficient, and what might be sufficient wasn't at all clear. Is that a quote about PTSD, or is that about the climate crisis? I think that that is his thesis here. Well, <laughs> that could be a, a, a statement on uh, how many people are overweight. Uh, it's, another... the, it's, the, it's the same thing. It's, you know, you, you each of us may know that eating too many calories is not good for us. Mm -hmm. But yet we have a society that calories have become very inexpensive. This was a problem for uh, the history of mankind. Yep. And now we have a whole group of people who are overweight. This could be the challenge of racism. This could be the challenge of any of those global things that naming it, talking about it might be useless. We need more, but I don't know what else to do. And I think part of what he's talking about here with PTSD that he does a really, really great job at showing is that there's a, that individual post-traumatic stress. So Frank May, as we go through the various things that he tries to, he returns to India, he does like various therapies with eye movements, et cetera. So there's that individual trauma, but then there's also the cultural trauma, right? And that goes to, I mean, that's a great example of individual people being overweight, but then also of a bloated culture, right? And so, that movement between the individual and culture. And of course, when we think about climate crisis, we're thinking of not only all of us who are alive right now, the cultures within which we live, but then also the cultures and the people of the future, which we have to give some thought to as well. So we have examples of, of this in the past, certainly European examples of the world wars. So, I mean, they've got people who've lived through hor horrific events. The legacy of that is still around today. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's not like we, we don't have examples of that. And, you know, the, the answer could be individuals choosing things, choosing goals, um, like I'm going to be thinner or I will exercise more or whatever those things are, or I'm going to use um, less electricity. These are individual choices. But when you start working um, beyond your um, immediate community or your, your state or, or here in the United States or country, if you start moving internationally, what, a, what an interesting statement that would be. And because mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you, you're, you're dealing with a whole different level of, uh, of um, challenges on, on that. And it's interesting that even though Robinson is an American author, he sets this whole book elsewhere. He has only a very few of his chapters are set in the U.S. So Frank May is an American aid worker. Mary, our other main character, is Irish. And then, you know, he just goes globally. Mm -hmm. now, one thing that I really quite liked, but I wasn't sure if it would be popular with all readers, are these funny little chapters that give us like a riddle or a definition. So like chapter two, I am a God and I am not a God. Inside, I am hot beyond all telling. 
And yet my outside is even hotter. And then he doesn't come out and say it here, but it's like, I am the sun. Now in some future (laughs) riddle chapters, he will actually end the chapter by saying, I am such and such. Now, these are very odd little chapters. What did you think of these? I, I again I like the voice shift the idea <laughs> of the switching between the different types of writing the different types of information gathering the different types of of emotion we have so many shifts and he's he's pretty adept at putting in a heavy chapter like chapter 25 holy cats what a yes. heavy chapter that is <laughs> and then loosening the reins just enough so that we can keep reading Shakespeare it was wonderful at this the the tragedy of the writing is followed by this very comedic moment so that we can feel the emphasis on the tragedy and feel uh, uh, something uh, of a relief when the tragedy yes. is not upon us All right, the so use so for our listeners, what was chapter 25? What was it so heavy oh, with? We're going to get there, Chip. We'll get there. That's, <laughs> we're still on chapter 11 at this point, yes. Chip. <laughs> we'll get yeah. there. Chapter 25 is the kidnapping chapter. So we'll we'll definitely okay. have a little time on that. All right. I also wanted to pause at chapter 11, the ideology chapter, where he says, ideology, noun. So we're doing a definition here. An imaginary relationship to a real situation, which is like, ooh, That's an interesting definition. And then he goes on to say, worldview, philosophy, religion. These are all synonyms for ideology as defined above. And so is science, although it's the different one, the special one, by way of its perpetual cross-checking with reality tests of all kinds and its continuous sharpening of focus. Yeah, I I love that. I love this theme of ideology the idea of an imaginary relationship to a real situation. We do this all the time. We make ideologies. We have these ideas based on our observations. And sometimes those ideologies turn out to be incorrect because we did not have the right information when we formed our idea. But we can always change an idea. What we can't change is a belief. Beliefs are irrational but an idea can be changed and i like that he also says that science is a special kind of ideology you know because it's it's based in a rational method mm-hmm. so it has a different relationship to the facts which of course i'm putting in quotations but to reality So it's so funny how this book feels really different. Don't you feel like we had read a lot of books that have very, very intertwining themes, including questions about reality? But this one kind of takes reality as a given, unlike many of the novels we've read lately. But there is a mention of fate, that that Frank feels that there is fate. Mm -hmm. So we do have a, a line through our reading for Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I don't understand how philosophy would not be thrown over with the scientific part. It says worldview and religion. I can I can take that, but philosophy would follow either uh, logic or, you know, at some point it has to go through the scientific method, right? You're making a hypothesis. Based on an observation. 
Sure, which is uh, Aristotle's view of the world. So I, 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 this is this is where I kept running into like something's something's not jiving here. Something is not going through. I, I understand science. Science is I, I propose a hypothesis. I am to defend my hypothesis. At some point, it's either accepted or it's rejected, or it okay. remains a theory forever. But we have a lot of long-running theories in science. They seem to hold true until we find a, a one but, experiment where they don't. But but it's up to the believer. The 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 the, um, the defense of it is the believer. It is the person who would say, "I believe X. I believe it so much that you know I'm willing to study this, and I have to defend that. And if it's proved false, then it's false." I mean, it's 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 up to the believer to defend their position on that. Um, but when you're talking about religion and a worldview, maybe that's not the case. But philosophy would fall under that same part. You can explore ideas, but at some point you have to defend it in the world of ideas. And it's that larger worldview that or universal view that larger than you perspective that changes philosophy you can believe it all you want but if you find somebody else who can prove it incorrect then it's only no 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 you, you get it wrong that the burden of proof is always on the believer it's not on the non-believer the burden of proof in, in the scientific method is on the believer but I think, Chip, part of what you're saying is that you think that because philosophy is based so much in logic, or at least good philosophy is, that you would you would lump it in with science rather. You Absolutely. Would, you would put it in the science silo instead of the religion and worldview silo. I get that. I get that. But I think that one of the things that I really liked about his musings about ideology, other than it gets us thinking and talking, which I also love, is that He's acknowledging that we all approach the climate crisis with a lot of baggage that's partly intellectual, partly emotional. We all have these different worldviews and philosophies and interactions with science based on how much science we've studied, et cetera. And, so, and then we have to come up with policies, right? We have to come up with policies that are global. So he talks near the beginning, he talks about the Paris Agreement, because that's what we currently have. And I was curious how much you guys have followed the agreement. And also, to what degree you think that agreements like the Paris Agreement and the Kyoto Protocol, uh, Paris Agreement from 2016, replacing the Kyoto Protocol from 97, how much do you think they're helpful and important? Do you think they have negative consequences? Are they, are they purely positive approaches to this question? Or do they make people think, oh, good, we're doing something. I don't personally need to do anything. My country just signed this protocol, so I'm, so we're good, even though we haven't come even close to meeting any of the targets mm -hmm. that have been laid out. Well, the, the same challenges um, that, that you would have in any type of agreement like this is um, while they're different, there would be the same challenges a cartel would have. There's uh, an incredible incentive to cheat. So that's exactly what you'll find out from this. So we all agree to this, but you know what? No one really follows it and they cheat. And that's exactly what happens. That's... So they're unenforceable. 
that's uh, I, I, I hate that that is true. I hate that you're right. <laughs> I don't ever want you to be right, Chip. But yes, you're right that it, it's it's so large. The global idea is so huge. The tiny steps that I personally can take, I can choose not to. And so, there's no enforcement. So, so if there's going to be a chance for this to um, to happen... It's going to be a country like India. It's going to be a country like China. It'll probably be some uh, country in Africa because they they will have the population to force it on the rest of society because they would build their society different than the United States would build. We, we would not create a grid system, an electricity system, and things of that nature today like we, like, um, we, we, we've which what has evolved into this way. I mean, why would you put up um, copper wires everywhere when you can have cell phone towers? Mm -hmm. So that's where you get scale. And once you get scale, the price dumps, it just mm -hmm. crashes down. And that way you can, you can start making adoption everywhere. Uh, in addition to that, it, as you're building new things, you could come to uh, you know, there's, there's green building. And if you're going to build a new house, why not build it with solar panels? If you were going to, to use materials, you know, do you use plastic materials, which is a, a challenge, or do you use more, more earthbound materials? Um, uh, I mean, there, there's just, there's, um, there's so many decisions to be made. The decisions that were made yesterday, there's only so much you can do with them. You, you can, but you can they certainly forward. influence the next decisions. Correct. That's, that's, and the deal is, is they don't go away. Right. So the power plant you build today, it lasts for, you know, I don't know, a hundred years, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So the, the real challenge is, is that by the time it's useful life is ending, you know, have you, have you gotten to that next piece of technology? Mm -hmm. And what, what the challenge is, is that when you start, producing something on the scale that you're producing for a community, for a state, for a, a country, it's not like replacing your cell phone. Your cell phone's a thousand bucks. It's very expensive. Okay. But you're not dealing with that. You know, um, Biden's uh, administration just passed a $1.9 trillion bill to deal with the pandemic. Nobody, nobody, can can truly in their mind conceptualize how much money that is okay and and you know it's just one of those things that it's just it's um it's it's bigger than most of us can conceive mm -hmm. and that's something that i feel like robinson does a great job he he has some great reflections on money which we'll get to i'm very curious what you thought of those chip but also i feel like he does a nice job of showing the the technological challenges as well as the cultural challenges right so we obviously have to have new technologies as chip you were just saying to replace fading ones that, that aren't working well but we also need like new cultural approaches and i think both of those are really mentioned and so as we think about the structure of this novel and how like innovative it is I'm curious to ask you guys, we have these two main characters. We have Frank May, who's the traumatized aid worker. 
who's in his late 20s. And then we have Mary Murphy, this 45-year-old Irish climate activist. Which perspective really captured you more as we move between their two stories? Which was the one that, that really captured you and why? Well, I, I was wondering the whole time, who is the main character of this story? Who is the protagonist who's going to take us from beginning to end? Who is the antagonist? Who is the, the bad guy in this story? Because Frank, who is the character that we're introduced to first, I assumed from there that he was going to be the good guy, the protagonist. But boy, the PTSD affects affects Frank in such a way that he feels this urge to do something so much so that he steals a gun and thinks about assassinating the evildoers, the, the corporate people who make these decisions because he can rationalize that is the course to solve this crisis. I, I think that Mary is going to be the more protagonist, but I don't know what's going to happen in this story. I know you know because you've read it, Pam. <laughs> I, I can't think of any one of them. We got a radicalized. Uh, we got two radicalized people here. Yeah, and they're both they're both paths. I would say are immoral. Hmm. At what point can you justify killing another person? There's certainly a long conversation about the uh, black <laughs> ops. Well, then, right. But before well, exactly. that, the, the black I, I, the operations. Going, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. this, the, both of their logic is illogical. And then they meet in chapter 25, where Frank <sighs> comes to Mary's apartment and kidnaps her and forces her to sit and have a conversation. A very lengthy, frightening conversation because we've been inside the mind of Frank and we know that he is struggling with mental health from PTSD and he could theoretically do something uh, irrational in this situation. Well, as long as it's for a good cause. I mean, let's go ahead and justify it for us. Well, irrational. Irrational is never justifiable. That's why it's irrational. If we could if we could figure out the why to every tragedy, every person that goes through and decides that this is the right course, we would be much better off. Well, and chapter 25 is really pushing buttons. And I can feel that, Chip, your buttons were pushed there for sure. But it's really pushing buttons and saying like, yeah. You know, and Mary doesn't know how to process all of these ideas that, that Frank is proposing. Because, of course, Mary's a rule follower. Mary believes in the system. She's a bureaucrat. She's going to the ministry for the future. She's doing the math. She's doing the communications. She's working with all of these experts. She herself is an expert. So she's doing the quote-unquote right thing. And she's faced with this eco-terrorist, basically, who's been a victim of a climate crisis. And she finds herself thinking, he's obviously, he's like, you know, on the wrong side of the law and she's a good law abiding person, but she doesn't end up telling the police where he went. She doesn't get him arrested that night. Mm -hmm. right? She just she sees something in him that really challenges 
her own bureaucratic worldview. So it's quite, I think it's quite a fascinating moment when the two of them meet. I really enjoyed that chapter, even though it was a difficult chapter in many ways. I, I understand your word enjoy as in good writing, oh, not very as good. in the very situation. Yes. Yes. I, yes, I'll agree with, with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I found it. Okay. I Because I did find the heat wave chapters were to me so powerful that I, I couldn't enjoy them. I, mm-hmm. I could be impressed, but not enjoy. But this chapter was like the philosophical back and forth. I did think was quite, was Quite enjoyable. I stand by enjoy. <laughs> I like debates. Why don't you read a little bit about Earth first, and whether a human should walk the Earth or not? Because that's a that's immediately what I thought. Long time ago, I was I, I read some stuff, and this is a radicalized group that humans are blind on the Earth, and because they are blind on the Earth, they deserve to be uh, exterminated. And I think that this is basically the the arguments that are being made here. Um, Frank is saying, "Hey, listen, this is uh, it's, the world is bad. Humans are bad. We got to kill people because that's just the way to do it. Mm. I've just justified it, and I'm going to be the jury on this, and I'm going to uh, execute." I, I think that is that is a terrible precedent. Oh, that's so interesting, Chip, because I didn't see Frank as a deep ecologist at all. So that's fascinating um, because I think that maybe maybe I misread his his arguments, but I think that he was saying, and by the way, obviously, I'm not in any way condoning the assassination of CEOs of, of major corporations, obviously. But I think Frank was saying that if we assassinate people who don't participate, who like sign up to do things that then they don't do because of profits, then we make those positions far less attractive. So I I thought that Frank was actually, was not at all like we need to get rid of the 8 billion people. He was saying we need to do targeted, he belongs to a group that believes in doing targeted assassinations, which again- And that's reasonable? And that that is ever reasonable? That is absolutely, that's despicable. Absolutely. But I'm saying it's quite a different argument than the Earth first argument, which is which is much more like we have to get rid of billions of people in order to have um, in order to save the Earth. So it's it's quite a different argument is all I'm saying, Chip. At I, least, I think the both just the more of Frank's argument is not at all the Earth first argument, I don't think. Well, I, I'm looking at it as both. They're both difficult. <laughs> yeah, they're they're both. not difficult. They're both despicable. And they're they're immoral ways of looking at things. Imagine you're the target because someone doesn't like how you teach or how I walk the street or whatever it is. Whatever that reason is, that is a despicable way of, um, of, of choosing to live in a humane society. Right. So exactly. And literature often represents really, really, um, you know, outsider views. And so that's the question here is that then how does this view get represented? And one of the great things it's doing is having us talk about it. Um, and, and Mary sympathizes with it. There's the other part. Yeah, and why do you think that is? Is she frustrated by the problems with the Paris Agreement, the Kyoto Protocol? Is she frustrated by feeling like she's been trying to follow the correct bureaucratic ethical approach. Who said the bureaucratic way is correct? 
working. Who said that's the correct way of doing things? Oh, sorry. So what do you think is the correct way, Chip? Forget I, I'm not proposing a correct way. What I'm saying is oh, okay. that this idea that, that somehow by creating a bureaucracy, that that's going to solve the issue is incorrect. I mean, you, there, there, trash is a good way of, of, of thinking about things. Trash would be a great way. So do you, is the challenge of the trash, the producer, who is producing the, the good that would go into what will eventually be the trash, or is it to the individual um, who is purchasing the good to uh, recycle it or whatever it is? Well, the answer is we don't know what the best way of doing it is, but I mean, either one could be fine. So I, I don't, my, my th this idea of creating another bureaucracy that will be ignored, that has no enforcement um, is not probably the answer. But there, there's got to be other ways of, of dealing with these issues. But the problem is that we don't have the answer. We don't know the way. We haven't fixed it. We don't know how to fix it. So trying nothing has not done anything. Right. And so... When you try nothing, we, we, I've explained that we've moved from incandescent to LEDs. Okay. There are things that, that that can be done, and that's just you know one small thing that we could do, but certainly has a big impact. But we have other things that we could do also. We have more fuel efficient automobiles and and any solar panels that I have on my roof of my home and my electric vehicle, so I don't use gasoline, so that I'm not adding as much to the carbon in the air. Well, that that may or may not be true, depending upon where your electricity comes from. It may or may not be true on what ends up t it takes to be able to get the minerals and stuff like that to create the battery. It may or may not be true based on what ends up happening with your automobile after its useful life is over. I mean, there's more to it than just the feel-good moment of that you, you can go down the street and you don't feel mm -hmm. like you, and you feel good about it. There's, there, there, there's a lot more than just um, the, 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 personal experience you're getting from what you're thinking you're doing and that's as of right, that as of right now yeah mm -hmm. as of right now the the um the materials that you have on your roof uh they cannot be recycled so after their useful life is over it's just trash and so we're, we're still you know technologies come and they start creating um as the information and new ways of doing things what you're doing today will look, you know, archaic um, 10, 20 years from now. But it's the beginning of, of, of change. Well, and I think that's one of the um, anxieties that this novel, to me, really effectively addresses is this notion that many of us in developed countries are like, okay, so we are doing all these things. And like Steve, I'm like, yes, so not eating meat, solar panels, electric car all of these things, LEDs, but what is the impact of that? Really, it's quite small and it doesn't actually get us away from any of our targets regarding two degrees Celsius, right? It just doesn't, it's not even, it's not anywhere close to enough mm -hmm. to, to actually stop, um, you know, the, <laughs> that rather terrifying early chapter, I can't remember which, about, um, about coastlines. Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah, so what do we do? I mean, I don't think any of us is like, oh, we have to assassinate CEOs. That's a terrible idea, right? But signing, signing protocols also isn't enough. 
So now what do we do? So obviously, guys, we're we're just starting this giant tome of a doorstopper of a book. So we are we're we're still early days. But I thought as we started to wrap this, we might look at some of the big statements and comparisons that Robinson provides us with. Cause I think they're well, there's so many to choose from. But doesn't he do some interesting work on bitcoins? Did anyone stop? Did anyone pause on bitcoins? I was like, what? Why in the world would this even be considered? If the world's going to hell, why would you go to Bitcoin? You would use a commodity. You would use something like gold. Bitcoin is not a money. It's not, it doesn't even fall under the definition of money. Part of his argument is that we are using our resources, our energy, to make this thing that's not even money. It's not even a resource. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Which is exactly what he's saying, right? So when he says that 1% of global energy is used to produce Bitcoin, I was like, (laughs) that really was a slap in the face. Yeah. All right, but but, but let me be fair on this. Apple, Google... Um, uh, Amazon, they're putting together many of their database centers to be zero carbon. Right. So, so that's today on those data centers. But tomorrow, as you know, th- there should be more that will be created as we as uh, the data centers that are using electricity uh, as we traditionally uh, tap it into. That could change over time. Okay. Because, I mean, that's exactly what's happening now, right? Mm -hmm. So for today, Bitcoin is using energy for their, what, money, not money. Okay, whatever it is, the the fake money that it is, the the fiat currency. It uses more electricity on an annual basis than the whole of Argentina, that's how much energy is being spent on Bitcoin today. And that's his argument, is that that is ridiculous. We should be using our energy more wisely. Yeah. Well, blockchain will be something that is going to be very important. And, you know, this idea of, you know, the Internet and things of that nature, it will be a, a drive, but but it's it's so useful. It's It's... Think about if you were some poor person in Central America, South America, Africa, the, the knowledge that you have available to you, the ability to sign up for a Corsica, the ability to have someone teach you how to create an ice machine or to fix an automobile or whatever that thing is that somehow you did. There's some guy in Africa, I think he built a, um, a helicopter uh, off learning how to do it through YouTube. Yeah. Well, there's there's certainly the, value so to that. The democratization of knowledge. And that mm-hmm. was something that was, for many, many, many years, was a privilege for only certain parts of society. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. secret societies were built on keeping knowledge from other Just people. Just the knowledge of farming that has improved the life of Africans. There's some stunning data over just because they have a smartphone, just because they have access to that knowledge, they can farm more efficiently and hopefully not impact the environment like our farming more efficiently has in our country. Our country could feed the world. Right. And I think that chapter 16 is one of my favorite really short pieces. 
in which he argues that there is enough for all. There's enough energy, food, shelter, mm-hmm. security. And he near the end of that chapter, he writes, if 1% of the humans alive controlled everyone's work and took far more than their share of the benefits of that work, while also blocking the project of equality and sustainability however they could, that project would become much more difficult. This would go without saying, except that it needs saying. Mm-hmm. And of course, <laughs> a good socialist like myself really appreciated that um, that chapter very much because it did lay out, do we have enough to feed the world? Because sometimes you say that, oh, there's just too many people. And he's like, mm, no, not really. No. I mean, we... There isn't. You know, it's any one of the breadbaskets who feed the world. Mm-hmm. So why don't we? Right. Well, that, there's, that, that is the, the challenge we're having right now, mm-hmm. is how do you get things to everyone? What, what, the problem in man's natural state, human's natural state is what? It, it, it is poverty, it is starvation, and we have risen above it in, in less than 200 years. Every part of the world, I shouldn't say, most parts of the world have benefited from this. But it's still, we're not at that point where every part has reached the, the level of European and American living. But how, how, how crazy it is to deny that they don't have the right to have those luxuries. And I think one of the arguments that the novel is making is that the climate crisis is inextricably linked to problems of inequality, right? And so this, like something like chapter 16, and he talks a lot about money. I also really love that board meeting in which Jorgen talks about the collapse of the reinsurance company after a great disaster. Like if the reinsurance companies can't actually, don't they don't have the funds to back up the contracts that they've made to insurance companies, then it becomes the government's problem. And unfortunately, the governments are already in debt to those exact same reinsurance companies. So Jurgen is so great. He said he speaks in these really like sharp statements. He says, nothing left to give without endangering belief in money. Entire system, therefore, on brink of collapse. And that notion of endangering our belief in money, that's fascinating. And is something that we're going to get more deeply into in the novel. So I, I think we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about like, what is money? Right? Money is just an idea, but it's something mm-hmm. that we all have to believe in or else it doesn't work. And what does that, what would that look like if our belief in money was actually shattered? It's a great question. And we'll keep talking about that one. All right. How can, can we, are we still friends after reading the first part of this book? Are we still, are we still together on this? <laughs> We're going to get through chapters 30 through 53. Wow, <laughs> and then we can talk. And then we'll talk. Jeff, I can't believe you refused to answer that question. <laughs> we're absolutely friends. Oh, but, no. but, but we're assuming that this, this book is, um, has a lot has logical arguments. And, I, and I'm, I'm struggling with whether he's a... a, a you know, the deal is, is you can go down this mental masturbation that, of what could be. But the deal is, is if it's illogical and it doesn't hit reality, then it's it's just just a fun little uh, exercise of thinking. And that's it's so I funny how my worldview—he's hitting a lot of reality. So that's so interesting. Just completely, this is like showing fissures in each of our worldviews. I love that. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. <laughs> 
Oh, could you say that with more conviction? <laughs> what, what do you I think, heard, Pam? What I heard there was, oh, we're going to come back to this. <laughs> so, so far, Satman hasn't been my favorite. But anyway, that, I, I enjoy the subject. But that's the point of the book club, isn't it? You bring a book. Pam brings a book, I bring a book. Some of the books you like, some of the books I like, and some of the books Pam likes. Pam likes everything. Every once in a while we get a Charles Dickens thrown in there and we all can agree. And we can all agree to not read the fifth story and just move on to January. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> what I do you think, like Pam? I like the worst Victorianist ever that, uh, <laughs> that day, but that's okay. <laughs> I think we have enough information and I look forward to coming back next week. Wonderful. We would love to hear from you. What are you thinking? Where, where are you at in your journey? Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Send us an email with your whole diatribe, sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. And yes, we'll be back next week to read part two, chapters 30 through 53. We hope you can join us. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Chip Hassenflow, curmudgeon. And I'm Pam Bedard, optimist. We'll see you in the future. <laughs> <laughs>